thanks for downloading Ethical Theory Review. Today's book is Confucianism and the Philosophy of Well-Being. It's published with Rutledge. The author is Richard Kim, who's an assistant professor of philosophy at Loyola University in Chicago. Richard, we met uh, some years ago, and I've always enjoyed talking to you, and it's, it was a real pleasure to read your book. To start out, I you know some of the listeners will be familiar with the Confucian tradition and some won't, and so one of our big uh, topics today will be introducing them to some of the different figures in that tradition, but also the relevance of their arguments and views for thinking about well-being. And so I thought we could start out just with uh, the first chapter gives us a good entryway here where you discuss Mencius and Shinza, two different f- thinkers that, and typically in a Chinese philosophy course, you would, a lot of people would read the Analects first maybe, and then read these two thinkers. And they have contrasting views of human nature and stories about how from sort of the starting points built into our human nature and our psychology, we can grow into being moral people. And they agree that to live a good life in a certain sense and ha- have some kind of well-being, we need to do that. But they have different models about that. And so you situate both of them in a kind of broader tradition of thinking a uh, naturalist account of well-being, where to live well and have well-being, you need to develop sort of intrinsically good things that are compatible with human nature or maybe are built into human nature. So I thought maybe you could start out saying a little bit about Mencius's view and uh, how, how you sort of get into that for people who aren't familiar with it. And then we could talk about the contrast um, with Shinza. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, well, uh, it's great to be here with you, Brad. Um, yes, we had some really excellent conversations some years ago in Hong Kong. I do remember that. It was very broad-ranging, and we talked about virtue and uh, well-being and flourishing and um, a host of different authors and uh, or thinkers, as I recall. Um, yes, yeah, so, okay, so you asked me to begin with some discussion of uh, Mencius or Mengzi, who is um, maybe the most influential Confucian um, and uh, had a profound influence on the uh, trajectory and shape of the Confucian tradition. And um, so Mencius uh, followed um, Confucius or Kongza and um, kind of extended some of the ideas of Confucius. And um, there's a lot of interesting uh, uh, psychological ideas that we find in Mencius. So Mencius, I think, um, took very seriously uh, the nature of human psychology, in part because, like all Confucians, he was very much interested in uh, uh, in uh, practical questions about how is it that we can become good or virtuous or um, uh, cultivate ourselves morally. And so uh, Mencius sort of, we might think of as sort of fleshing out some of the ideas about um, moral psychology and some of the implicit ideas about human nature that we find, let's say, in the Analects. Um, in the Analects, we don't really find much discussion of human nature. Or actually, it's quite, uh, there is some scholarly debate about that. Um, but Mencius thought that human beings um, naturally possessed what he calls these uh, various sprouts. So um, at least four moral sprouts, duan. And um, these sprouts are kind of um, incipient. They're kind of fledgling. They're kind of... Um, there are these emotional inclinations that are directed toward certain specific virtues. I find that to be actually really interesting in and of itself because 
it offers um, what I think to be um, following uh, here Owen Flanagan, uh, kind of a modular view of morality. So there are specific kind of um, emotional uh, capacities that can be developed that give us a certain specific kind of moral competence. So one of the uh, uh, sprouts, uh, maybe the most well-known, is the sprout of compassion, which can be developed um, through effort and cultivation into the virtue of uh, benevolence or, or ren, which is a fundamental virtue in the Confucian tradition. So Mencius offers this um, interesting idea about uh, ideas about human nature. Uh, and the famous slogan here is that human nature is good. And when, when Mencius uh, claims that, he doesn't mean that, you know, you look around and people are really uh, virtuous. Um, in fact, he saw a ton of human depravity and vicious people. But what he did mean was that humans by nature are directed toward um, moral goodness because they got these sprouts within them. So um, Mencius, uh, one way to think about Mencius is that he thinks we possess these uh, sprouts of goodness that can be developed into full-blown virtues and become a true gentleman or a, a Confucian sage. So that's um, Mencius's ideas in a nutshell. Um, yeah, let me pause there for a second and you can follow up with any thoughts or I could talk about Shunzi as well. Yeah, I mean, one thing uh, I thought was interesting about that is that, so there are these four sprouts and I, you mentioned, uh, you know, Flanagan has in his book on, uh, it's called like the geography of morals, I think is a title. He talks about, um, you know, yeah, empirical support for this. And you mentioned this in the book too, that there's some evidence in favor of, for example, Paul Bloom's work saying there, you know, maybe there's some sort of quasi innate sense of justice. And then the other, you know, you got the, the sprout of benevolence, then there's a sprout of righteousness, um, and there's a sprout of wisdom. And so one other thing I thought I'd bring in that was sort of interesting, I thought, in your discussion of this is that you might think, okay, people do have an innate sense of benevolence. So Mencius mentions if you hear a child falls in a well and it's crying out, your, whose heart would not go out and feel sympathy or, or, you know, empathy or something for the child and have some inclination to help them. And these other sprouts, you might also think are sort of naturally there. One of the sprouts wisdom you mentioned, it, it can seem sort of like a meta capacity uh, that we have to, to sort of reflect on our psychology and whether it's developed well or not or something. So I thought maybe I would just would be curious to hear you say more about, I mean, benevolence, I think that first spread is pretty straightforward for people to think about. It's given that example of a child in a well, you have a sense of what that is. Um, so with the other sprouts, uh, maybe if you could say a little bit more about the other two and, and sort of what are the cases that, that Mencius would bring up or Confucian would bring up to get us to think, oh, these do seem like things uh, that we naturally see occurring in, in, in children. Right, right. So, yeah, I think Mencius, um, right, he draws on, for example, various thought experiments, but also I think um, Mencius thought you can observe these sprouts sort of uh, um, growing within um, human beings. And so, um, Right. So like, and uh, yeah, you, you mentioned like, for example, the work of Paul Bloom. And um, I think actually at this point, having read a fair bit of developmental psychology, for example, the work of Michael Tomasello would be another person. Um, I think 
the general view nowadays is that we do seem to find there to be this kind of a, a kind of innate moral sensibility that's of course you know radically underdeveloped um, in very young um, children, even babies. And so, um, so in that regard, um, Mencius seems to be at least empirically supported. Um, but I guess there's still debate about there to what extent is culture and education really responsible for moral development. But um, yeah, so there's, there does seem to be some evidence for sprout-like tendencies. Um, you mentioned, right, so there's four moral sprouts, right? So one of them is uh, this uh, sprout of compassion. Another is uh, the sprout of, um, uh, for example, approval and disapproval. You mentioned uh, wisdom. So approval and disapproval are evaluative, uh, are sprout of evaluative judgments, let's say, can be developed into wisdom, which you actually um, uh, rightly noted is a kind of a kind of meta virtue because it helps us to understand how to grow the other sprouts or how they should be developed. Actually, um, that's a really important point because as Flanagan himself notes there, um, Mencius does think that there are these kinds of um, social, psychological, moral competencies. Um, and these, uh, and so one, we might think that they're kind of these distinctive uh, moral powers, thereby suggesting a kind of modular picture of morality. But on the other hand, it's pretty clear that Mencius also wouldn't hold to what um, Flanagan also dubs uh, as um, a strong modularity because of the fact that um, the sprout of approval and disapproval actually does influence the growth of other sprouts. Um, so the, it's not like these uh, various sprouts kind of grow completely independently, like, you know, let's say four flowers growing together uh, in, in isolation, but they do seem to kind of penetrate each other and affect, um, uh, mutually influence each other's development in some way that, um, that I don't think is fully fleshed out in the text. Um, so, right. So if you take another sprout, like, um, you know, say, uh, deference or respect, right, which can be developed into the, uh, virtue of ritual propriety, I think Mencius thought, yeah, we find this idea that we can kind of, we have a sense of kind of a hierarchy, perhaps we can kind of see that elders should be respected. Um, we, we picked that up quite early, right? Um, so I grew up, um, uh, so Korean was my native language, and I grew up in a, a kind of Korean Confucian household. And um, uh, in Korean culture, um, you know, even the very language um, is inflected to um, to connect with the kind of uh, hierarchical um, social status. So, like when you talk to an older person, you actually have to add this specific kind of um, ending to each word. And in fact, if you don't do that it would be extremely um, disrespectful. In fact, I couldn't imagine, um, as weird as this might sound, like speaking to my grandfather without adding the special kind of Korean inflection to each word. Um, so I think, um, yeah, so of course the thing is, you know, that's a kind of, you might think a social cultural construct and uh, maybe not like something necessarily naturally or, or organically Embedded in, embedded in our nature, so I actually yeah find all this um, very interesting, and um, to some extent I'm not entirely sure myself. Like to what extent do we find these um, emotions or moral competencies or moral sprouts anchored in our nature versus you know seeing them as kind of the product of specific social cultures? Um, yeah, what do you think about that, Brad? 
Yeah, that's because one thing I was thinking is, um, you know, like the sprout of compassion seems clearly pro-moral mainly. But then if you think of a, a sprout of respect or deference, um, one thing that's kind of interesting is I would think, well, even if that it gets expressed in very different ways in different cultures, when I've been raising my own kids, clearly your kid, you might think your kid has some natural attitude of respect for, you know, you or older siblings or something, or they might, and then in your culture, you might say, like, I teach my kids, they need to be respectful for their teachers. And so there are different people who they might be taught to have respect for, and there might be different hierarchies that those are connected to in different ways you express respect or disrespect. But it does strike me as it might be just an innate part of human nature that you're going to have respect for some other humans and kind of growing that natural respect response and having it develop as part of your personality is going to be pretty essential to achieving a, a level of well-being. So, uh, so that seems right. And then, it, but then it starts to seem like, uh, you know, it, it, we, we might more think some of those ways of that developing might not actually be morally good. And also they may not also be conducive to your well-being. So if people start to have respect for the wrong people, and they start to take a, you know, if, if people above them are taking offense at the wrong things, it, it almost can seem like these sprouts can get led in the wrong direction. So that's, that's one thing it's, I'm sort of thinking when I think on concretely about this, some of these sprouts seem, you know, potentially could grow in a good way and be conducive to well-being and morality, but then they seem like they're sort of, they could go into the opposite direction. Um, so. But I don't know, that might go with Confucian thinking about it's really important to have the right sorts of family surrounding while you're growing and to have the right sorts of uh, social rituals and hierarchies. And it's not clear that sort of the sprouts themselves sort of give us an implicit criteria for picking out the best social order uh, I don't know. So that's, I don't know what you think about that, but that's, I mean, maybe Mencius was more optimistic about they have sort of uh, something packed into them that points towards the direction of a, you know, a good outcome. Um, yeah, I'm that's right. Think yeah. These are more sort of, uh, I, I sort of feel like that I, I'm inclined to think that they might be more neutral and they could go either way. And we might want an independent account of the structure we want to, you know, the direction to grow them. So anyway, that, those are some initial thoughts. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, that's right. In some ways, Mencius is maybe a bit more optimistic that internal to the sprouts, they seem to have this kind of direction that is um, tending toward the good. Um, whereas, and maybe this is uh, one place to bring up Shunzi, the other very important uh, early Confucian thinker who um, is famously uh, known uh, for the slogan that human nature is bad, um, and by which, um, and here, of course, there's disputes um, among scholars, but one way to understand that idea is um, connected to what you were just saying, Brad, which is um, actually like human nature um, is uh, constituted by various desires and um, inclinations that are kind of messy and unorganized and um, without uh, proper ritualized development will actually um, lead people in bad ways. So um, I think Shunzi, um, well, so Shunzi clearly thought, um, uh, 
just as Mencius did, that human beings could become virtuous. But Shunzo thought that a lot of the, um, uh, he put a lot of weight in the power of the Confucian ritual, social structures, uh, good teachers, um, family upbringing. And um, in part because he thought um, that, no, we don't, you know, there aren't these sprouts that are kind of nicely directed toward virtues um, in the way that Mencius believed. Um, so, yeah, I wonder if the idea that you were sort of proposing there maybe tends to be, uh, or the way you, I think, described it might be a little bit closer to Shunza there. Um, but there's no doubt, of course, here that um, we do need the proper uh, social structures. We need the right kinds of rituals. We need the right kind of social environments. I think we've become, um, in some ways, like, much more uh, sophisticated in our understanding of all that um, uh, for at least moral development. Um, but at the same time, yeah, perhaps Mencius was right, though. At least for sure, it seems like when it comes to that sprout of compassion turning into benevolence, that, yeah, human beings, we, we did naturally evolve, it seems, to be socially cooperative. Um, so even from the perspective of our uh, evolutionary biology, I think there's a strong case to be made that these various sprout-like tendencies and inclinations are the products of um, our evolution, which did certainly serve uh, a valuable purpose. Um, but of course, one thing to recognize is, well, we don't, you know, we no longer live in that kind of, a, you know, uh, ancient um, mode of li uh, life where, you know, in small tight-knit groups of 200, we live in this very strange place called America. And uh, everything is so diverse and uh, very, I mean, it's maybe gotten even more strange in the past 10 years. Um, but, um, you know, people have different, different values, different religious religious traditions from which they come. And uh, there's deep political disagreements, as we all know. And so, yeah, I guess one thing that I, I always think about is, yeah, so we can definitely learn from these Confucians. And I think there is a lot to learn from them. But at the same time, it is always important to, I think, keep in mind, and, and this is something that I've come to be um, more, I think, aware of, in the, especially after graduate school, um, influenced by, for example, the work of Alistair McIntyre, which is that morality is embedded within a specific society and culture, and moral concepts have a certain history. And so I think it's good to always kind of reflect on the way that these various moral values, whether they're about sprouts or virtues, are actually embedded within specific social structures. And so um, we need to think hard about how can they be realized in concrete societies and, and um, at certain specific historical moments. Um, yeah, so okay, so let me, let me stop there and I'd like to hear some of your thoughts. Yeah, no, I mean, that's really interesting because one of the things um, I wanted to get to, so this would be a good segue in a way, is the Confucian stuff on ritual. And so, you know, I, it is sort of interesting to me to, you know, when I first started studying the Confucian texts, I kept asking all my friends who worked on Confucianism, so what is this word that's getting translated as ritual? And what are these rituals? And the idea that rituals can play this really great role in, I mean, you mentioned one thing people uh, have talked about is that there's a worry that arises from social psychology that people can be pushed around a lot by situational influences. 
And so one thing people have said about Confucian rituals, it could be looking at the way uh, social norms or, you know, which can include things that we would consider etiquette, but then going uh, more broadly to other kinds of aspects of our social infrastructure in our society and our, you know, expectations we have of each other, patterns of behavior, and that that, those, the having those things in place, it can be a way to enable us to not be pushed around by situational influences. And another thing is that for Confucians, it's, there's a lot of emphasis on these rituals are what enable you to either develop your sprouts uh, fully or, you know, to sort of overcome the indeterminacy and potentially bad aspects of human nature and sort of straighten out the crooked wood and become good. And I've been, I've been interested in, you know, if you think, read what the Confucians say about this, and then you look at our society today, what are the analogs to, to rituals in our society? And what worries would someone like Confucius or Mencius have? Because that's one of the things, read the analogs, Confucius is really upset about how the rituals are changing in his era, in the warring states period. And he's really concerned that the rituals are getting worse and that's going to make it harder for people to be virtuous and, and have and have social harmony. So I, I, it makes me wonder, you know, what are what are our rituals that we have now that are influencing everyone as we're growing up and interacting? Are there ones that would be seen as problematic or not? And so that's a general question I'll ask. And then I guess in particular, you mentioned one thing I really appeals to me about the Confucians is they say, ideally, you would engage in rituals. And by doing that, you would develop a sort of moral excellence approaching being a sage. And so it's not just moral, it's also you'd sort of become more like a wise person. And as a result, you'd get some real kind of, I guess, a kind of tranquility of mind in the face of various uh, threats of loss, the uncertainties of outcomes, uh, you know, when bad things happen inevitably because we're just finite creatures in a fallen world, so to speak. Uh, you know, by becoming a sage, one thing is there's a kind of uh, ease and tranquility and, and a sort of peace that you get. Um, and so I'm curious, you know, do you have any thoughts about how that they think that arises through the influence of ritual? And then, you know, a lot of people today would like more tranquility and we've got increasing anxiety, especially in the last two, three years. So it just makes me sort of curious if you, if you have thoughts about um, ritual there or just in general. Mm, yeah, these are, yeah, very good questions. And I don't know if I have very insightful answers here. Um, I mean, so some some uh, contemporary scholars have written, I think, in very illuminating ways. So for example, about, about ritual and how it um, connects it connects up with our kind of uh, contemporary moral lives. So uh, like Amy Oberding, I don't know if, you, if you're familiar with her paper. Um, she has this um, paper in the journal Ethics about Confucian ritual and etiquette. And um, as I recall, it's been a while since I read that paper, but I thought she made a very nice point that um, one way that rituals can help us today is that um, it can create these healthy norms where, um, you know, it, it can also, like, it can help us express, like, in a very regular kind of patterned way, the that kind of respect we I think all of us really crave from others, even if we might not think think about it that much, or that we and that we ought to also show others. And when I say respect, I don't I don't mean like some 
you know, super burden, like you stand up straight and salute, you know, something like that, like to, or like, you know, for a judge or a, you know, a soldier or something, but like, um, but that every day, I mean, yeah. So um, that everyday ritual, for example, like that uh, Herbert Fingeret brings up in, in his book, um, uh, Secular as Sacred, where he um, does a very nice job of talking about even like a ritual, like a handshake, right? Although who knows? Um, actually, I remember a couple of years ago, right? When COVID was, uh, we were a few months in, whether handshakes would come back. Um, I don't know. By the way, I, I'd like your take on that. I, I, I think it is. I think eventually it will come back or maybe it already has. Um, but um, but yeah, so Herbert Fingeret, um has this nice example of a handshake and all the complexities involved in that very simple gesture, the various background understanding of, you know, what it is to shake someone's hand, what the purpose is, the kind of shared um, uh, grasp of the norm that you need, right? You can't, and and you've, you know, probably also met or had experiences of bad handshakes, right? Someone grasping like in a very bad way or getting too close. And so, um, but, but it is kind of the simple, but very powerful gesture where you kind of recognize someone as a human, right? You don't uh, shake the hands of, um, other entities. Um, and, um, and so that little simple gesture of, or, or just like seeing someone and nodding at them, right? Um, you kind of realize how much power these little things have when it doesn't happen. So for example, I think we've all felt a little bit like, I guess, what's the modern word, word, uh, dissed by someone, right? Where they seem to fail to greet us. And you're just like, huh, what, what, why is this fool not greeting me? Like, what is this? And uh, you feel a little bit bad or you feel a little bit disrespected, right? Th- these are just the substance of uh, much of human life and, and, and human strife as well. And so I think Confucians were very much um, aware and sensitive to how these little things sort of pile up in our everyday lives and how human beings are very messy and complicated and 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 they were very much in um, all about you know cultivating good social relationships as well, right? Good sort of flourishing communities and um, well ordered relationships. So um, I think they really um, thought these very small rituals are extremely important, um, even though they might not seem like it. And so um, perhaps one thing, yeah, I wonder if Confucians might criticize us for not maybe thinking enough about like, yeah, some of these everyday rituals, the role that they have, the powerful way that they can kind of form our relationships and create healthier bonds. And um, so I think just right there is a tremendous insight that um, I think is very much um, uh, connected to our, um, you know, modern day life in 2022. So, um, okay, so I think that that's um, to try to provide some answer to your first question. You also asked about, yeah, like tranquility and ease and how perhaps rituals can provide that. And you mentioned how um, clearly, according to statistics, depression is on the rise. It seems like actually, I think they say like every single year, depression rates keep increasing. Um, at least it has been for many years. And and it, that actually started even before COVID from what I know. So yeah, that is disconcerting. And it also, especially for the younger um, kids, I think they, they're experiencing, ex, uh, experiencing higher levels of depression, which as a parent um, also worries me a lot. Um, yeah. You know, what is the cause and source of it? I mean, I, this is such complicated cultural 
you know, social, sociological questions that um, as a just a poor moral philosopher, it goes way beyond probably what I can say. But you do wonder if, you know, so there's, there was this book called um, uh, Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam. Do, do you remember mm-hmm. that book, Brad? Or yeah. Are you aware yeah, of that yeah. yeah. And that was, I think, 1980s when he wrote that is what I know. So, it's, I mean, I was just a kid when, you know, when that book came out. But I think one of the ideas of that book is we have, I, I think Robert Putnam was alarmed by the rate at which, for example, people weren't participating in community um, clubs and organizations or, for example, the uh, the PTA, Parent Teacher Association. A lot more people used to go to those meetings. People used to have bowling clubs. And there were these various uh, activities and communal practices that really helped to forge these bonds among people. And I think the Confucians, I think they were so... Um, keen and insightful about the absolute need of very strong social relationships that I wonder if, first of all, that is at least a part of the source of our malaise, this, um, this kind of, uh, yeah, kind of, I mean, it feels like we don't really know the names of our neighbors as well as I think people used to. And, you know, that's the outcome of many, many things and maybe partly political polarization. So I don't know how to solve that at all, but um, but yeah, so maybe I guess the Confucians would say, yeah, well, a lot of their rituals were, um, you know, socially anchored, right? So we got the rituals where, um, communities would come together. I mean, the big time rituals for them were things like, of course, like, you know, funerals, um, and these, uh, ceremonies. And I guess in some ways we still have those, right? We do have funerals, we do have, um, you know, wedding celebrations and, um, so those are kind of the big time, larger scale rituals. Maybe maybe they can help. Um, but maybe, yeah, you know, one of the things I've thought about a lot with, you know, as I, I think I've mentioned several times. So, yeah, I think the po- political polarization has really bothered me a lot in recent years. Right. It's it's like almost like people can't even trust or they don't they can't even imagine themselves being friends with people with different political beliefs because uh, it's so, you know, um, so heavy and um so contentious. Um, but there was a time when I think people were recognized, yeah, I know we have these different views and ideas, but you could still be friends. And maybe that starts with kind of, you know, maybe starts with being a bit more involved, like on our neighborhood block, maybe just in the little, you know, couple of blocks of, you know, uh, you know, where we live, right. And knowing the names of people and greeting and, cultivating some genuine attitude of like concern and like well wishes. I think that just those basic things might go a long way. I mean, I guess it's very hard because we got all these like new technology of social media and it's so easy to just like be reading about everything that's happening all the time in the political world or, you know, in other parts of the world. And, and um, whereas our lives are really lived in a specific concrete place and, maybe it's not a bad thing to kind of return to some of that in our local communities. Yeah, that's, I mean, what's interesting about that is you mentioned at one point that that's, they focus a lot on your actual relationships with specific people. And it's not as much about your impact on the global society or the large, what's going on in the larger frame. And that cultivating good sprouts and dispositions or good character traits and expressing them in these concrete cases, I could see if you have more personal interactions with other people, 
they're not always going to be harmonious and they're going to sometimes be full of struggle, but you're going to be confronted with how you want to actually relate to these other people in a concrete way. Um, another thing that I thought was interesting you brought up about etiquette is that, you know, I was thinking like when you shake hands, you know, you could be shaking hands, uh, like glad handing people to get some advantage, or you could be shaking hands because you're really wanting to express goodwill towards the other person. And the Confucians really were emphasizing that you have to do certain rituals and to be focused on doing them from the right motives. And so I think that's, you know, if you don't, if you spend more time with people in the community and interact with them more, you're probably going to be, you're going to be getting more feedback and they're going to be more aware about what attitudes you're actually expressing. And so it could kind of seem that you get kind of a feedback loop in, in more close community interactions with other people and they're going to get to know you better and they're going to care more about what you're expressing. Um, so I think it's, it's kind of interesting. I could see how this stuff about rituals, encouraging uh, the right attitudes and expressing the right attitudes through the rituals, it would kind of work better in communal settings. Um, another thing that I thought I'd bring up that I was curious what you think about is there's a passage in the Analects that I always think of where Confucius is complaining about the rituals going downhill. And one of his examples is some family that normally, if you're going to have, I can't remember the number, it's like if you're going to have five dancers to celebrate your family at some festival, that's because you were, you know, maybe you were the emperor, you were, and then you were more virtuous and you've done good things for your community. And so you're going to have, we're going to have more of a public celebration of you because of the good things you're doing in your leadership role. And so this one family just got a bunch of money and they were like, oh no, we're just going to get more dancers because we can afford it. And that was like, that's like one of the keys I always noticed he was very upset about. And I think started thinking about the rituals that in our society that might promote uh, bad attitudes <laughs> and, and so materialism. And so I, I wonder what you think about that. I sometimes mention in class, maybe, you know, the day after Thanksgiving, everybody goes online and does all their cyber deals now and everything. And the fact that we have this ritual every year, people are very excited. And like Christmas, like we have a lot of rituals that we go through in our society that kind of seem to transmit the, the message that, you know, consumerism is good and having lots of fancy things is good. And similarly, I think, well, okay, what do I do when I get up in the morning? I check my email, I check Facebook. And you could ask yourself, what, what psychological states are you reinforcing by doing that? Um, and like, I was just thinking with the polarization issue, uh, I saw Steve Darwall's got this talk upcoming. I saw in Berlin, I just read the, the abstract, but he's talking about how part of polarization is that people have, are sort of over time developing more and more contempt for other people and especially in other groups. And so you might think, yeah, if you get on Facebook and you start surfing that, or you start going online and you, you know, you, and you read news just from your news bubble, if you think about it, you might be sort of cultivating a, a, an anti-sprout of contempt for other people. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and so those, maybe those would count as their, 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 their ritualistic behaviors, right? That we engage in every day and they, they might be shaping our psychology over time. And so it's, and so that might be, I'm wondering if you think that, that, that those are kinds of concerns, um, you know, confusions might have. And then for me, one interesting thing then is, 
it's not that stuff's not that easy to change. You know, it's not that easy to all of a sudden, like, I don't know if you, I've been like, oh, I'm going to get off Facebook and then I'm back <laughs> on it again. Every, you know, and so, um, and I also bring that up because I've recently read some psychology, it's contested, is that the higher rates of anxiety and depression, especially um, among young women, is correlated with uh, their use of specific social media sites like Instagram and TikTok. And, you know, there's some hypothesization among psychologists that that's it's somehow because, you know, it's, it's, it's increasing the amount of social comparison going on. Uh, and then that undermines people's, you know, feeling good about themselves. And that's more speculative psychology, but it's, but it does again, seem like that's a kind of ritual. If you're, if you're a teenager and you're spending a lot of your time engaging in this, with this technology that's leading you to judge yourself against your peers based on your appearance or whatever it is, uh, that would be a kind of ritual that might be sort of not one you'd want to have. Um, but yeah, do you think the kind of Confucian notion of ritual encompasses that kind of stuff or is it, or is this, you think it's, I'm being too speculative. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, I guess broadly speaking, you're right. I mean, I guess we can um, conceptualize these as rituals uh, Would the Confucians have done it. Um, yeah, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I mean, yeah, you brought up like, yeah, these various, um, yeah, kind of patterned practices, I suppose. And maybe that just is a kind of ritual. Like, for example, you brought up a nice, uh, yeah, the, the, what the Black Friday, right? Sales um, after Thanksgiving. And uh, yeah, like, it's really kind of gross and upsetting when you see people like sometimes people get like trampled on and like, they get really hurt. I think like, at least one person usually seems to die every year. And, you know, you just like see people because they want some product, right? And so you see the kind of the, the nasty outcome of just, you know, what ancient Greeks called pleonexia, right? Just the desire for more and more, that desire for gain, which um, we also, of course, find in Mencius, right? The beginning of Mencius, uh, the text, um, is him basically chastising the king for saying like, or, or for simply focusing on profit, right? And um, and so I think actually all the wise sages and the wise minds, um, both in East and West, um, I think they always picked up on this fact that we are kind of uh, inclined to grasp after shiny objects, right? Material goods. And, and we have this tendency to um, not be focused enough on our character or, you know, moral goodness and so on. And it's easy to get sidetracked. And, and, um, and ultimately that is bad for us because um, it just will not satisfy you um, for one thing, uh, just by getting a lot of um, material goods. Um, so I think, yeah, the Confucians would certainly have been worried about uh, like the Black Friday ritual, whether or not they would have called it quite that, because it seems to um, subvert the proper ordering of what uh, of of of, the, of human goods, because um, here I think you do find clear evidence that the early Confucians thought, you know, there are actually higher and lower goods. Um, you know, they, I don't think they ever had a problem with things like you know wealth, or um, you know, uh, or I'm not sure if they really thought about fame like that, but but yeah, certainly wealth, um, you know, power. Those are not things that they thought was intrinsically bad um, or, or um, you know, or sex, right? Those are not bad things in and of themselves, but um, there's this tendency to um, order those goods uh, wrongly in, in our lives. 
And um, what's most important, according to Confucians, was our moral what uh, was our moral character, our whether or not we're moving toward the direction of virtue. And um, and I think there's you know maybe it just sounds too optimistic from maybe a certain angle. I I just had this long conversation with a friend. Um, his son is uh, is is in high school, and he had this very pessimistic view and he was just like oh, i just want to make a lot of money right and he reads like warren buffett's autobiography every day or something like that but i was just thinking you know and i i didn't you know he, i don't think he's like a bad person clearly he actually has some deep moral impulses after after talking to him for a while but i was just thinking you know and he's young so who knows you know um what will happen but i just thought huh you know i don't think that that will actually really satisfy you and I think the Confucians would have said ultimately that, no, it's only when you are able to fulfill, your, fulfill yourself as a moral agent, because, you know, one of the deepest desires I think human beings do have, which is important to remember, is um, the desire for self-respect. I think we do think of ourselves as moral agents. And when we can't really think of ourselves as, um, as decent people, I think that's a really uh, rough thing on our psychology. Um, so, you know, grasping after these, uh, you know, lesser goods and material goods, it's just not really going to fulfill us. As so from the perspective of Confucian well-being. And so I think they would say, yeah, there's a lot of these rituals that just are um, counterproductive. They're not going to um, serve us or serve our ends, um, including, for example, yeah, the social media rituals that you talked about, which is clearly, um, I think, I think even wasn't there something about even the Facebook like executives they even knew that or 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 maybe it was an Instagram executive I can't remember which social media but they actually knew of these studies and they knew that there was harm being done to younger people especially for some reason um, uh, younger uh, women and I have two daughters and that is pretty worrisome and presumably it's partly because um, you know it's so easy to get into this um, comparative mode where you're just constantly comparing yourself to others. And, um, and the thing is, I totally understand that. Like, I've done that too. And, um, you know, that's where jealousy and envy comes from. And those are really, um, I think as you get older, very harmful emotions and attitudes to have and not helpful for us. So, um, yeah, so I think it's important always to think about, you know, when it comes to, you know, these rituals or the various practices, including social media or, yeah, it's good to be really observant and sort of, um, I guess, uh, self-aware, self-aware and, and um, you know, it's, it's good to examine, you know, are these things actually serving their purpose? Are they contributing to our well-being and to, you know, our moral growth? Because I think the Confucians were right that, like, you know, our life is short, it's finite, and, you know, thinking about ways in which we can live as good people seems like a very, uh, something that is actually very beneficial for us. Although, right, there's that, you know, uh, the old um, dispute about whether virtue and well-being are deeply interconnected. But the Confucians certainly thought so, and um, I tend to agree with them. Yeah, and I think, I mean, the thing you said about that there's an innate desire for self-respect and it certainly seems like you know we could worry about whether how tight the connection between virtue moral being moral and being a good person and 
happiness or, or well-being is, but it seems like that's at least one route to say there's a strong connection. And I think it's interesting to think about Mencius because like you mentioned, you know, Mencius, even though he's this real optimist about the sprouts we all have, he's a, he's a, he's aware and there are stories of him engaging with people who are overly concerned with profit and they've got sort of their values. You might just think their priorities are in the wrong order. And the way he approaches that is he tries to sort of tap into the person's natural positive sprouts. And that, that gives them a way that they might be able to see why you would want to have a different order of values that would actually be better for you. So it's, I think it is, it's sort of a way that if you, if you read a lot of this stuff that's going on today, you can, people can get very down and cynical. And so it's, it's a nice thing to see someone like Mencius is, is aware of these problems can occur but then he's he's got this more optimistic story for about you know how you could turn it around how you could f- figure out the right way to order things and the right way to orient yourself and i guess uh, you know with the time left i wanted to bring up one of the other things i thought was really interesting in the book as you talk about the specific confucian virtues so what would it take to have self-respect to be a good person and so you mentioned some of these might be somewhat familiar, you know, similar to Western tradition, benevolence, loyalty, righteousness, but then they add in ritual propriety and, and filial piety. And so I thought we don't have probably time to go over both of those, but I, I, you have really interesting discussions I want to recommend to people about both of those. And maybe which one of those would you want to say a little bit about how it might sound foreign to a Western audience, say, uh, the idea of filial piety or ritual propriety, you give really nice examples in the book um, about about both of those. Like with ritual propriety, you mentioned that movie about an Orthodox community. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, maybe you could say about one of those two a little bit more about it uh, and, and, and kind of how you bring it out in the book. Yeah, good. So, um, yeah, both are, of course, integral to the Confucian tradition, um, uh, ritual propriety and filial piety. And... Um, yeah, I, I like thinking about these important cornerstone values in the Confucian tradition because, again, I think it's so important to kind of see how these values sort of are realized in concrete, specific um, societies and cultures or within a specific tradition like Confucianism. Um, and what's interesting is, so the Confucians, so taking ritual propriety first, um, thought that um, one of the most important things um, as a human being is to uh, fulfill the various roles you occupy. So, um, as you know, uh, there is um, important work done by some um, uh, contemporary scholars like Roger Ames and Henry Rosemont. I disagree with you know some of what they say, but um, they really um, emphasize the importance of roles. And I think all you know, pretty much every Confucian scholar. A contemporary Confucian scholar also discusses that, but um, but I think that's a real insight that you know our lives are um, are constituted by these various roles we occupy. Right, we're a student, we're a teacher, we're a uh, we're a parent, um, a child, a friend, uh, aunt, uncle, and fulfilling these roles properly, I think, is a way to also kind of conceptualize our own flourishing and well being because. When I like go through my day-to-day life, I usually don't necessarily think about like this kind of, you know, oh, like, do I have high well-being today or something like that. I, I do constantly, though, think about like, you know, um, I mean, maybe not, you know, in explicit terms, but 
you know, um, I do try to excel in some specific task, right? Like I try to uh, be a good father or a good uh, husband or a good friend. And, and so this is like the substance of human life. And I think it kind of brings to, uh, yeah, brings home like what really well-being in some ways consists in, which is the proper fulfillment of the various roles that are substantial for, for us. And of course, rituals are very closely connected to roles. And um, by um, participating in rituals well, and uh, we're able to also then fulfill these various roles that we have. So um, I think for the Confucians, the rituals were closely tied to these roles, which they thought were also sort of fundamental to our flourishing as human beings. Um, so that's one way that I think um, ritual propriety is extremely important for the Confucians. And um, yeah, let me pause there for a second. Yeah, did you have anything? Yeah, no, that's an interesting take because I hadn't thought about it that way. And that's a nice way too. like, if you think about the rituals that you develop that might be kind of idiosyncratic. So sometimes talk of ritual, it sounds like, well, what happens to this? You know, I, I remember when I got married, I wrote my own marriage ceremony and it was performed by my wife's uncle. And so I remember writing it and then you go to this bookstore and you're like, well, how are you? Okay, what are you going to write a of what marriage ceremony about well you get the book and you start with like the standard ways people do it you're not going to invent whole whole cloth uh that so some rituals are pretty socially structured and you kind of borrow them from your culture but the stuff you're talking about like you develop rituals around like a family relationship and your family rituals might be really different than other people's right and that's part of what's fun about them and but there are ways you express uh your concern and care for the other people and following them involves some kind of respect for the family and the relationships in it. So I can see uh, that, you know, ritual could really kind of play that role in those, in an actual roles that you're, you're inhabiting. And then that's seeming really plausible to me. That's, that could be a big part of the values that matter the most to you. And so, you know, I, I think, probably the most plausible subjectivist theory of well-being today is a, is a value fulfillment view that's going to be developed by Valerie Tiberius and, and Jason Reebley. And, you know, and then uh, Dale Dorsey has a different type of subjectivism. All those, I find those, you know, they're pretty appealing. Uh, they've got a lot of lot going for them. And, and if, if you emphasize people's judgments about what's good or bad for them and their values, it seems that, right, that you'd, even on that view, you'd probably think most people who are happy with their life their values are centrally oriented around these relationships. Um, so yeah, so that does, uh, and it's a, it's a nice way to frame the idea of rituals uh, as being more individualized and sort of uh, tied into your life in a, in a really concrete way. Yeah, so um, the other point that I would make is, because I think you brought up, um, yeah, my discussion of this movie about an Orthodox community, uh, it's called Menash. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that exactly right. Um, but it's about this man who um, actually he lost his wife and his life isn't going particularly well, it seems. Um, he sort of lost custody of his son. And um, but he's he's striving to live better. And one way that um, one of the sort of the way the culminating points of the movie is um, he engages in this uh, ritual practice called um, the the Yarsit. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm not saying that right. But um, 
Yeah, so it's like uh, it's this ritual where you celebrate the passing of a loved one, and he's supposed to bake this uh, 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 Jewish casserole kugel. I think is what they kugel, call it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and um, which actually I had subsequently after watching that movie, which I really enjoyed. And um, but yeah, so the community gets together. You kind of um, yeah, there, there are various aspects to the ritual, and and um, at first I think like what happens is his brother in the movie, who's much wealthier than him. Um, says that you know he'll um, you know carry out this ritual, but actually it's it's the job of this man, and so he says no no I'm going to do it even though he lives in this kind of cramped apartment, and um, but but what he does is he he tries really hard he buys this like um, like a fitting painting he gets this like recipe of making this casserole from a neighbor, and um, actually he ends up burning it but um but what happens is. He uh, like he impresses the head rabbi because it's so clear that he he just put his heart into it, and um, and actually people start respecting him after that, and so this ritual and his sort of like except for the bur- maybe the burnt uh, kugel uh, <laughs> um, kind of expressed like a kind of competence maybe like it, it gave him an opportunity to sort of express excellence in some sense and. I think actually that these roles and rituals, which are closely connected, um, in a way, what they offer is for us to also kind of express or to try to meet various standards, to kind of cultivate that kind of self-respect for ourselves and maybe the respect of others, which I and um, and thereby gaining a kind of meaningfulness to our lives, which I think is so fundamental and important. Um, and because I think that is one of the sources of the kind of malaise that I think, you know, people talk about in the modern world that, you know, we don't, we don't really have the sense of purpose or meaning. And I think these communities, these Confucian communities, or I guess the Orthodox Jewish communities, they have more structure perhaps to them and these roles and rituals that are also meant to kind of infuse individual members' lives with meaning. Now, of course, there's other kinds of criticisms criticisms we might raise, right? Because, you know, there might be some rigidity and certain practices that we think maybe, you know, should be revised. So I think, you know, there's all, all kinds of things like that, too. But on the other hand, I think like these traditions, these religious communities, they do have this kind of structure, this kind of um, and a tight-knit community that maybe kind of helps to combat some of that kind of modern malaise that we tend to feel as kind of detached people. Um, yeah. Do, do you think that makes sense? Yeah. I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think the other thing is that, you know, if you're someone who doesn't, it's just, you know, like a lot of people today, they've moved away, their families scattered across the globe or whatever. They're not near mm-hmm. them and they mm-hmm. don't maybe for job reasons, you move to mm-hmm. communities, you don't have roots there. And so you might say, say thank you. Well, one of the challenges is, you know, what's going to play those roles in, in your life. And I thought it's, that's really interesting when you're, you know, I read about it in the book and I thought it was interesting that the movie, one thing you mentioned there is the rabbi's role in that story. It's really fascinating because it's not, you know, sometimes you might think, okay, in a traditional community of certain people who people defer to them and help them make decisions and things. But the role in this story is it's sort of the person who was validating this guy's self-respect and kind of in the role, the, in the eyes of the community saying, yes, he did the right thing, even though he did have his crummy, you know, apartment or wherever it is. I haven't seen the movie yet or mm-hmm. he burnt it. 
but that's not what matters. And I think you're right that that's, it just, the story is really nice because it, it can make sense that that's what you'd want to have happen to someone anyway. And so then you might wonder if we're not in the Titan Mick community uh, and someone, uh, you know, does something like that, that's impressive and it shows something about their character and it, and it shows something really good about them. Mm-hmm. Who's going to play that role of the, you know, is there a community that's going to see that? Is there a community that's going to affirm that and sort of the kind of like the social bases for self-respect um, that I agree. I can see the appeal of that. I mean, and like you said, obviously people are going to worry, well, maybe there's some people in some of these communities that don't get those goods if you're in the wrong group, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so there's mm-hmm. obviously right. could be other sides to concrete social structures, but I think you know, it, it kind of gives uh, some weight to this worry that if you're if we're more living more atomistic cosmopolitan lives, moving around disconnected, um, that would be a you could see this is something you'd want something to play that role. And especially for people who maybe are struggling a little more or people who, you know, have have had more roadblocks in their way. So they're not the successful one. Right. And so then that's the person who um you know, in this story is able to get this affirmation that what really matters is, are they doing the right thing for the right reasons? It's not about, you know, having the fanciest uh, display. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's, I think you're right that it's, it's a, uh, you could see how, um, you know, like going back to when you mentioned bowling alone, there's, what is the loss of these communities? What's the, what's the thing we're going to be missing? Well, this looks like a concrete thing we would be missing is this sort of, community to surround us and respond when we're in these situations and affirm, yes, you know, this was, this was the right thing to do. And it was impressive, even though you burnt this thing or something like that. Yeah. I um, think we, we all need to feel like we're useful in some way, some way that we play a role. We're like serving a, a function in some sense. And, um, you know, like when young men, for example, they don't have a, they don't have any work to do. That's pretty dangerous stuff. I think that's borne out by human uh, psychology, sociology, and history, because I think um, we all ne- do need to feel like our lives have meaning, and because we're serving some end that's valuable, that we're contributing to the broader society in some healthy way, and um, so I think that's actually extremely important. And these roles and rituals kind of give us that. And um, uh, but of course, we need to continually reflect on these roles and rituals and whether they're actually good. And, um, you know, and, and from a moral perspective, so that that's all right. That's all true. But um, I think like at the kind of in terms of the framework, the Confucians do give us, I think, like sort of the building blocks of, you know, even if we don't you know, buy into all their values, which I don't think we should. They do give us like sort of the, the foundation or the framework for kind of realizing what sort of, you know, lives we need, what sort of uh, social structures um, might be necessary for uh, individual human flourishing. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's a good note, I think, to end on, Richard. So thanks for coming on. Uh, and uh, yeah, I guess last thing, my like, usual last question is, um, you know, what things are you interested in now? What what kinds of things have you been reading that get you excited that you that, that you think um, you'd recommend other people take a, take a look at? Is there anything kind of lately you've been reading or thinking about? Mm, I don't know. I feel like I've been kind of all over the place, but um, I'm still reading a lot. Um, the early Confucians, I've been reading Shunzi, this because um, I've been focused a lot more on Mencius, but I've been reading um, the classical text of Shunzi, and it's been um, really interesting. Um, I've been thinking a lot about um, moral development, and um, 
I'm working on this new book, Integrating Ideas from uh, Aristotle on Habituation, uh, the Early Confucians on Moral Development, and also uh, Contemporary Moral Psychology and uh, uh, Developmental Psychology. And uh, one of the things that I've become really interested in is the role that, like, how do we make sense of this idea that, on the one hand, we're human beings that are clearly um, deeply influenced by our environment, our genetics, um, our family, and so on, and our culture and society. And on the other hand, we're also agents that move around in the world through choice, decision, and effort. How do those two, I mean, this is kind of a classical old question, I suppose, that people have been thinking about from different directions. But yeah, like that, I guess in a way, it's that problem of like how to integrate the first personal perspective with the third personal perspective. And also, um, yeah, because I think like when I read a lot of stuff, a lot of the stuff I've been reading about when it comes to moral development by psychologists, they tend to just mainly focus on, you know, um, genetics, perhaps, um, uh, although not as much, and and social environment. And then that basically you're just, you know, everyone's ultimately just, you know, the necessary product of, you know, the genes and the environment. But on the other hand, we do think that the agents somehow have some kind of role to play. I mean, we hold people accountable. I, I think I mentioned um, right before we started this discussion, uh, the work of a uh, uh, Pamela Hieronymi, that who who you uh, interviewed, and uh, she talks about uh, Galen Strawson and the reactive attitudes and the way that actually we we can't but hold others accountable or ourselves accountable, and this is the way we uh, necessarily operate as as human agents. And so um, I, I hope I don't have to go into such deep metaphysics, but even in in thinking through moral development, I was wondering, yeah, what is this role of you know, like individual kind of, I don't know, persistence or effort. Because when I think about my life and I hope to try to become a better person, there's this part of me that thinks, well, I have to do certain things or I got to try a little bit harder to be kinder. Like I should be like, you know, uh, I, I should not, I should be less judgmental. And I don't think of myself as just this kind of, you know, cog in the wheel, just or like a leaf blowing through the wind. I feel like I, you know, I make decisions and I hold myself accountable and sometimes blame myself, or I, although I try to be understanding, I guess. But um, so, yeah, how do we integrate that aspect of ourselves as agents into a kind of uh, holistic story of moral development? That's what I've been really thinking hard about these days. Great. Well, I'll be definitely excited, Richard. And I think, you know, coming out of those, those are super interesting questions. And then I think bringing in some resources from the Confucian tradition to think about those, I can definitely see it opening up kind of new avenues. Um, so I'll be excited to hear more about that um, later on. And uh, yeah, I guess uh, thanks so much for coming on. It was good to talk to you. Yeah. Thank you so much for this discussion. I really enjoyed it.